Shalom, this is Rabbi Talmud Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 29, Akhremot, After the Death. This is in Leviticus 16.1 through 18.30. In regular years, it's read with Parashah number 30, Kedoshim, which means holy, which describes God's admonishment that we are to be a holy people because he's holy and how that is to be accomplished. So this Parashah focuses on repentance how and when God was to be approached in the holy place, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the instructions for the two male goats used for the atonement, one that was sacrificed as a sin offering and the other that was sent out into the desert with the sins of the people on its head. This narrative symbolizes how Yeshua assumed the role of both goats as the one who took all of the sins of humanity on himself and became the only perfect and complete sacrifice in order that we may be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with him. This is not automatic. We have to repent of our sins and reconcile ourselves to God through Yeshua, who is also God. Let's look at the process of atonement at the time of Aharon's role as the high priest. That's a parallel to Yahweh's role. He was instructed to choose two male goats, one for a sin offering and the other to be presented alive to Adonai, to be used for making atonement over it by sending it away into the desert, or Azazel. The goats were placed before Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Aharon cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Adonai and the other for Azazel, which is translated as several characters in various references. In the Book of Enoch, Azazel is portrayed as one of the chief Grigori, or fallen angels, who cohabitated with women. In the extra-canonical book of Apocalypse of Abraham, Azazel is associated with the serpent and hell. He is identified as the spirit of Esau, embodying heathenism in the Zohar. In all practicality, Azazel represents the scapegoat. To reiterate, Yeshua accepted the roles of both the scapegoat who assumed the sins of man and was sent away, and the goat was sacrificed, but in this case, he was the perfect Ola offering totally consecrated to God, atoning for our past sins. See Romans 3.25 and 2 Peter 1.9. He became sin for us. Azazel, to atone for our uncleanliness and transgressions we committed before coming to the knowledge of Yeshua. This is Aharon made atonement in the holy place with the blood of the goat for the sin offering for the people of Israel and their transgressions. Yeshua made atonement before the Father with his blood and for our sins and transgressions. Yeshua took all of our sins and transgressions up to the point of our reconciliation unto him and placed them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered. Psalm 103.12 reads, He has removed our sins from as far as the east is from the west. Unquote. However, from that point we are held accountable for our thoughts and deeds and must keep watch over our hearts and minds daily. Rabbinical Jews hold a different view, as we would expect of those who do not yet know Messiah Yeshua, and the connection between the Tanakh and the Kadeshah. The two male goats are often interpreted as representing the sets of twins in Genesis, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. However, to subscribe to this view negates the depth of Scripture which is replete with parallels to Yeshua HaMashiach and his role in the history of Israel and man. 
The scapegoat sent into the desert cannot represent the quote-unquote evil twin brother in any of these pairs, as men cannot take away the sins of the world. And they don't just disappear. Neither could man, the good twin brother, have been sufficient as the perfect Ola offering required by God for the expiation of sin. Like the scapegoat, Yeshua was sent outside the camp, Jerusalem, as an outcast to be crucified, which was not a Jewish form of capital punishment, by the way. On Golgotha, skull in Aramaic, this place was so named because the shape of the hill is like a skull. Golgotha is located outside of Jerusalem's northern wall, which is significant in that Lucifer, Hasatan, planned to make his kingdom in the north. That's in Isaiah 14, 12, and 17. And the Holy of Holies was located on the northwest side of the tabernacle. Now, most people, it would seem, believe that story that Yeshua was crucified on a hill called Golgotha, and many artists have depicted his crucifixion as such. But we must ask ourselves, if Yeshua was crucified on the hill, how did the people read the inscription on the label that was above his head? The Gospel of John gives us a reason to believe that Yeshua was crucified by the road at the base of the hill rather than on top of it. This would certainly be more of an insult to be at ground level. John said that, quote, this title then read many of the Jews for the place where Yeshua was crucified was nigh or near. The city, that's in John 19.20. In addition, Matthew 27.39 and Mark 15.29-30 document that, quote, they passed by, which means reviled or derided or hurled, abused, blasphemed, depending on the translation. They did this to him. The fact that people were passing by indicates that the location of his crucifixion was near a frequently traveled road rather than on a remote hilltop. It would be kind of hard to spit that far. The concept of atonement expands into the discussion on the permanent regulation of Yom Kippur. In fact, the command that this time of year be observed as a holy convocation is mentioned three times from verses 29 through 34. And Leviticus 16.29 provides the purpose and instruction regarding this time of year. Quote, It is to be a permanent regulation for you that on the tenth day of the seventh month you are to deny yourselves and not do any kind of work, both the citizen and the foreigner living with you. For on this day, atonement will be made for you to purify you. You will be clean before Adonai from all your sins. It is a Shabbat of complete rest for you, and you are to deny yourselves. This is a permanent regulation. Unquote. So we see that God declares this time of year and its observance as a permanent regulation three times. What part of this don't we get? He also directs us to deny ourselves twice. What does it mean to deny ourselves? Oh, brother, rabbinic Judaism goes crazy with this. But the idea is we are to deny ourselves. The rabbis provide a plethora of rabbinic prohibitions, such as abstaining from intimacy, bathing, anointing ourselves, or perfume with oil, wearing of leather shoes because they're uh, comfortable and cost the life of an animal from which they were made and can often be seen as an ostentatious garb. However, fasting is definitely a sacrifice and denial of one's natural desire to eat. When we deny ourselves physical sustenance, we're better able to focus on the spiritual sustenance provided by God. For as Yeshua said, quote, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God, unquote.
Of course, we don't do any kind of work on this day. Our focus is on atonement and forgiveness of sin that can only be imparted through Yeshua's sacrifice. There seems to have been three purposes for legislation. God commanded for the observance of the Day of Atonement. Although God dwelt in the sanctuary, the priests were not without sin. Every year they were reminded that they needed to be cleaned or cleansed, just as every other object in the sanctuary. It's a beautiful truth that as true believers in Yahweh Yeshua, that we have access to the throne at any time. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through any saints or any other idols or anything else. We don't have to confess our sins to someone else to reach God. In fact, we're encouraged to continue to ask, seek, and knock in Matthew 7. And God will respond in his time, by the way. This is quite a contrast to what was required to communicate with God, as stated at the beginning of our Padisha. Adonai specifically told Moshe to tell Aharon that not to come at just any time to the holy place beyond the curtain so he wouldn't die. Moving forward to the Catholic Church, individuals who follow that faith must go through their priest or one or more saints with their prayers, supplications, and confessions. That's not done anymore. Not since the temple priesthood, the sacrificial cult. After Yeshua's death and resurrection, all such intermediaries were eliminated, or so they should have been. All right. The problem is with the Catholic priests and all, they're appointed by man. The priests in the sacrificial cult system were appointed by God. The nation of Israel also had to repent every year through the high priest who had to go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the nation. He had to identify with the nation on this very intimate level and conduct a personal search of his heart as well. The Associated Parashah describes the continual need, continual need, for us to search our hearts and repent of our wrongdoings in order to be a holy people and glorify our God. This needs to be done on a daily basis, by the way. This directive is also stated in chapters 18, verses 1 through 5. If we want to live in our Father's house, we must follow our Father's rules. The third purpose of the Day of Atonement was to call for individual repentance and to seek the face of God. The Day of Atonement, emphasized in the Spadasha, should inform us of its importance and necessity for salvation. We have things that we need to do. We need to follow God's commands works, effort. The fact that the priests were required to go through a ritual cleansing and had to be found to be ceremonially worthy reminded them and us that they and we need to seek forgiveness for our own sins before acting on behalf of anyone else. Finally, we find the Bible source for teaching against intimacy when a woman is having her menses or nida in, verses, in chapter 18 verse 19. And that homosexuality is an abomination. This isn't my opinion. This is God's word. This is not hate language. This is not bias. This is not intolerance. This is God's word. And he is certainly intolerant when it comes to things that he has commanded us not to do. This is Leviticus 18.22. It is also in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation and other places in between. The Parashah ends with God admonishing the people to obey his laws and rulings. 
This repeats Leviticus 17.4, quote, You are to obey my rulings and laws and live accordingly. I am Adonai your God. You are to observe my laws and rulings. If a person does them, if a person does them, he will have life through them. I am Adonai. This is a very distinct and clear cause and relationship, cause and effect relationship. We have responsibilities. We have a job to do. And our job is to glorify God's name and make it known throughout the nations. All right, I have to rise in Ezekiel 22. And in this passage, God essentially told the people that they were going to be held accountable for their rebellious behaviors, just as today. People think they're getting away with all of this. God will have his day. And it's very sad to know that people are arrogantly defiant in disobeying and ignoring God's Torah. Everything God commanded the people not to do in this Haftarah, they did. They profaned the Shabbats. They dishonored parents, wronged orphans and widows, treated the holy things with contempt, gossiped to the point of inciting bloodshed, committed incest, charged interest on loans, had sex with immediate members of their families, took their women during their menses, and forgot God completely before the nations who looked on Israel with scorn and laughter. And this is the point where God decided to scatter Israel among the Goyim, that's the nations, and disperse them throughout the countries. Through this process of isolation, God would remove their defilement and cause them <clears throat> to know the full ridicule of the nations. You know, this may be considered a type of spiritual quote-unquote timeout on a national scale. Israel has been persecuted more than any other people and continues to be ridiculed and hated today. And Israel in this context means all true believers. It's common. If you haven't been persecuted and you're following God's Torah, believe me, you will be. Pray for discernment. Pray for strength. Pray for wisdom to stand up against all that's going to come against us. God reminds us in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Yerushalayim, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children, just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. But you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, leaving it desolate. For I tell you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. Unquote. We will not know the true peace of God or see Yeshua until we say, Baruch I submit living to experience this time in history is a plausible possibility with the exponential degradation in our country and the world in general. As terrible as things are and as they continue to compete with the crimes of Israel when she strayed so far from God, we can and must stay strong and draw on the peace that only Yahweh Yeshua can provide. We have been kept alive for this time for a reason, to make his name known among the nations and glorify him. And this is done in the way he instructed so long ago. Quote, how blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell you all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. Rejoice. Be glad because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You are the salt for the land. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? 
It's no longer good for anything except being thrown out for people to trample on. You are the light for the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it with a bowl, but put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5:11 through 16. Abri Kadeshah's out of Romans 3. And in this passage, we're reminded that legalistic observance of Torah commands, God's, God's laws, avails us nothing. Let's get our premise clear from the start. Shaul, or Paul, is talking about legalism and following God's commands and the added issue of placing the oral Torah, that's rabbinical law and the traditions of men, which is also emphasized to take guard that we don't place that above God's Torah. If anything in rabbinical law conflicts with God's Torah, we should disregard it. He clarifies it as he speaks of legalism without the spirit of obedience and love. He points out that the Torah, that's God's Torah, shows us how sinful we are, lest anyone boast of his perceived righteousness in and of, of himself. Torah is a sort of, I call, ground zero, that brings us all down to the level of the sinners that we are, and will remain unless we trust in Yeshua's faithfulness continually and continue to follow his Torah. It's in Romans 3, 21 and 2. Verse 24 informs us we're granted the status of, quote, being considered righteous before him through the act redeeming us from our enslavement to sin that Yeshua accomplished. This means that he freed us from the death indictment we inherited through original sin. This does not mean that we are saved. Yeshua's sacrifice spiritually takes us through the Sea of Reeds and gives us a new beginning as we emerge into the desert that represents a clean slate. How can we say this with confidence? Let's look at Romans 3.25. God put Yeshua forward as the covering for sin through his faithfulness in respect to his bloody sacrificial death. This vindicated God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over with neither punishment or remission, the sins people had committed in the past. And it vindicates his righteousness in the present age by showing that he is righteous himself and is also the one who makes people righteous on the ground of Yeshua's faithfulness. So what room is left for boasting? None at all. What kind of Torah excludes it? One that has to do with legal observance of rules? No. Rather, a Torah that has to do with trusting. And trusting in Hebrew is translated as emulating, worshiping, following. It is an action verb. Therefore, we hold the view that a person comes to be considered righteous by God on the ground of trusting, which has nothing to do with legalistic observance of Torah commands. Now, many clergy in Christianity teaches we're living under the law if we follow God's commands. And we're trying to be saved by works. That couldn't be further from the truth. We are commanded to live by God's commands, his laws, and his statutes. But to do it with a loving, repentant, and humble heart. That's the caveat. Again, legalistic observance of God's Torah will avail us nothing. Again, we see that the Torah of God has not been abrogated. Paul is talking about Jews who held the position that legalistic observance of rabbinical law and the commands of God followed without infusing the spirit of the law made one righteous in the sight of God. Remember 
that the majority of Jews were not convinced about Yeshua being the Messiah, let alone being resurrected. The word trust is not some abstract cognitive concept as believed by most Christians. It is not the gospel of profession. As I've said before many times, the demons believe and they tremble. Many people just believe, I profess the name of Jesus and I'm saved forever, hallelujah. That is not so. And it's not biblically supported and it's dangerous ground to base your life on. Rather, trust is an action verb that means to follow or commit to something or someone. Therefore, what we have in this passage is a lesson that God's Torah is not dead. If we're to be considered righteous, we must actively commit ourselves, trust, in the faithfulness of Yeshua's sacrifice and his faithfulness and ability to forgive us of our sins. It is not our faithfulness, it's his. If you have any doubt about the meaning of trust, God provides plenty of examples in Hebrews chapter 11. Go there and look it up yourself. You will always see the word trust associated with obedient action. How many times does he have to say it? There is no way around this truth. If we want to have life and have it abundantly, we must return to our Padasha in Leviticus 18.5. And it says, quote, You are to observe my laws and rulings. If a person does them, he will have life through them. I am Adonai, unquote. Shabbat Shalom.